All right, so um, you guys are back. That was a little surprising after last week um, that you're here. But if you thought last week was controversial, uh, this week will prove to be all the more because Jesus is going to shake us to our core. Um, and we may not feel it like they did 2,000 or so years ago. Uh, we may not feel the shaking uh, to our core that God is going to deliver to us through his son Jesus when he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. That's an insane statement if we understood the righteousness of the Pharisees. So we're going to end there, but we're going to start by kind of recapturing what we've been talking about. Just as a way of review, we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount that we've called the gospel of the kingdom. We believe that this is the sermon that Jesus preached on repeat as he went out throughout all of Judea and Samaria, truly preaching this gospel of the kingdom, that true human flourishing, what we would call the blessed life, the, the, the life that we've probably all uh, put our budget and our time towards, the true blessed life is found in those who mourn, those who are meek, those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are persecuted on behalf of Jesus. That's the true life that is flourishing according to God's design. In His kingdom, that's what true blessing looks like. That's what we looked at as we introduced, as Jesus introduced us to His most famous sermon. That's what it looks like for us to be blessed. It's really this, this movement today and last week um, really of this movement from inward formation of the Beatitudes of meekness and hunger and thirst for righteousness into this outward expression of the faith, which we talked about the last two weeks, of being salt and light. But before we get ahead of ourselves to go change the world as those who bring flavor to the earth, those that bring illumination to dark places, Jesus slows us down. Because heaven forbid that we be a people that try to earn righteousness by being salt and light. We try to earn God's favor by being hungry and thirsty for righteousness, or that we think that every persecution in this world is actually a persecution because of righteousness' sake. Jesus slows us down, and whereas we've been in the introduction of Jesus' sermon, now we're in Jesus' thesis statement of his sermon. And if you um, have ever written a thesis statement, you know all the time, effort, and energy that goes into summarizing like your entire thought process into one statement. That's a difficult task. It also means that he's going to unpack everything that he means today later. But we still need to understand what his thesis is of this great sermon on the mountain. We just read it. Uh, the Alberts just read it. But I want to ask us this as we get into understanding his thesis. This is going to, again, be a little bit controversial, right? But it's this. What is your view of the Old Testament, like practically? How do you view it? Do you, is it something that you, as the psalmist said in Psalm, Psalm 119, that you would treasure it? It says, the law, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Is that how you view God's word? That's truly better for you than thousands of gold and silver pieces? Let's just call that millions of dollars. Do you, do you pursue it? Do you treasure it with that kind of value? Or do you read it 
Or maybe you just dismiss it. Or maybe you've read it once or tried to read it. You got on that reading plan and just petered out. You're like, I can't do it. Can't get through Leviticus. I'm out. So that was, hey, that's all of us at some point in life. Do we read it or, and treasure it? Or do we read it and, and start to get into difficult passages and start to dismiss it? I had trouble trying to figure out which difficult passage I was going to talk about today. So I'm just going to highlight a couple. Like, do you read the book of Joshua where he says to go in to a nation or many nations and kill everyone there? Does that, does that ruffle your feathers? It should, should, should ruffle your sensibilities if you don't understand what God is trying to do, and that is cleanse the, the, the nation from sin. He knows those people will lead them away from worshiping the one true God, and that's the most important thing on the planet. He cares deeply about holiness. He dares, cares deeply about our affection. He cares deeply about our walk with Him. So we read like the book of Judges, and we go, man, that's, that's pretty rough. I don't know about that. We read the destruction of places like Sodom and Gomorrah due to sexual sin, and we wonder, like, what's going to happen to our country or the world? We, we should wonder that. Or do we just go, oh, God doesn't operate that way anymore? Jesus wasn't even there during that time. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Or do we read uh, books like the book of Job? You don't get far in the book of Job without really starting to, to kind of come against some sensibilities that we have because in the very first part of Job, what do we find? We find God having a conversation with Satan after Satan is roaming to and fro the earth to tempt someone, to try and get someone to bow their knee to Satan instead of God. And God, it was God's idea that says, have you considered my servant Job? That will mess you up on first glance. And what Jesus is going to invite us into is, go, is for us to go, go beyond the first glance. Go deeper because I came, Jesus will say, to fulfill all those difficult passages. Everything in the Old Testament can be summarized in the law and the prophets. And he's saying, I know it's tough, but I've come to fulfill these things. And if he has come to fulfill them, if he has seized the Old Testament with such high value that he would fulfill them and not dismiss them, then what does that say about our understanding of the Old Testament? Or what it should be? Or what it could be? See, my fear is that we are dismissing the difficulties that God brings to us because we don't agree with them or they cause us to feel anxiety. We don't like that God because my God's a God of love. Yeah, easy. But that God of love is also the God of justice and holiness. See, it's ruffling our feathers a little bit, but Jesus is going to value all that and bring us something far greater than we could ever imagine. So when we dis our, dismiss our difficulties with God, we are in danger of dismissing God himself. Those things that ruffle your feathers were meant to ruffle your feathers to draw you deeper not to push you away once you dip your toe in to the little bit colder water than you prefer. Drawing us deeper. And as Christians, we cannot say that we want to follow Jesus while at the same time dismissing God's word, any of it. Not Leviticus, not Numbers, not Joshua, not 1 Samuel 15, which is just a crazy chapter. You should go read it. Not the part about the she-bears, right? You remember that when we talked about that one like a year ago or the where uh, uh, Elisha calls down she-bears on the people that are calling uh, him baldy, right? That's all in there too. I like to bring that one up with my kids every once in a while. Just to set them straight. Just to let them know, I too am a prophet of the Lord. 
here's what God is inviting us into. He is cautioning us to begin, a, to begin this whole thing. How is he cautioning us? In verse 17, he says, do not think. Do not think. The very first part of his thesis statement is, you already got this wrong. Don't assume, the word is, don't assume based on your tradition, based on your customs, based on what you grew up with, don't assume that you know what I came to do because someone taught you something. This is a great thing that we must learn in the church today. Don't assume that the church is here for one thing just because everyone else is doing the other thing or that thing. Like that's a great, I don't know, that's like my, my greatest parallel is when people first come to the Grove or you become a partner of the Grove, um, there are some things that we're like, okay, well, we're going to actually like, like come alongside you and, and ask you hard questions. Y'all remember spiritual health checkups? If you've been a partner for more than like a year and a half, y'all remember those? And when you got your spiritual health checkup, so this is what we did. The elders of our church read 1 Peter 5, and, the, and it says, shepherd the flock among you eagerly, eagerly. Do it proactively and with eagerness, right? And so we read that. We're like, well, how can we do that? Let's do spiritual health checkups. So let's call people and let's invite ourselves into their lives a little bit. And let's sit down and ask them, so how are you doing in your soul? Like, I don't care much about if you're serving, although that's part of it. That will give me indicators of how you're doing in your soul. I don't care much about if you're giving, although that's part of it. Are you being baptized? What's going on in the deep recesses of your soul? Why would we be so invasive? Because we are called to shepherd the flock amongst us eagerly. Right? So that's one of these things. It's like, hey, don't think that just because we're a church, we're just going to be like fine with attendance and giving. That's not what we're about. We're about shepherding and caring and loving and getting into the real deal of life, right? That's a whole shift that we have to kind of get behind when we start talking about anything. And that's the same kind of thing that God is doing with do not think. It's like going to the eye doctor. Like I took my daughter to the eye doctor recently. Going to the eye doctor and they put that contraption on your face. You know the contraption? Anybody got glasses or contacts? You know the, con the contraption? And they start to mess with your mind. It's an inside joke. I'm convinced they got some kind of secret Facebook page between optometrists and they just share stories. Yeah, they, when I said three or four, they bought it. They bought it again. And it's just this continuous joke that they just kind of share with each other. That They go one or two. Oh. And three or four. Uh-huh. And five or six. Oh, okay. The E still looks like an E, man. I don't know what to tell you. Right? That's what Jesus is doing here. Are you going to look at him? Are you going to look at God through one, tradition, or two, truth? Are you going to look at him through three, self, or four, Savior? Are you going to look at him through five, Scripture, or six, preference? See, we may not be able to discern right off the bat what he's up to, but he's already saying this is going to be a different experience for you as you come to flourish inside of the kingdom of heaven. And if we don't get our vision right, we'll start counting wins that are actually not wins. We'll start counting our own activity, our own busyness, our own religious works as a win when in fact God is calling us to this constant and continual change and checking of our vision. And it's called repentance and faith. Why do we do confession and repentance and assurance of pardon almost every Sunday at the Grove? Because we need to be reminded on a regular basis, we didn't get this right this week. Not because we want to shove 
uh, guilt in our face. No, it's to remind ourselves of the need for grace. To remind ourselves of the need for, to remember God's goodness and his service to us in his son Jesus. That's why we do it again and again. This is the air that we breathe as healthy Christians of repentance and faith. So this is why Jesus is telling us, don't assume that you know me or what I came to do. you got to stop. you got to pause. You're about to get a dose of reevaluation when he starts to say, you have heard it said, but I tell you. That's like the rest of, of, of really chapter 5 and a little bit getting into 6, right? It's, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Check yourself. I almost said it before you wreck yourself. I said it. There it is. I do apologize. That was not in the notes. There is nothing, though, more dangerous than a person who assumes. Listen, y'all, there is nothing more dangerous than a person who assumes they're right with God based on some misunderstanding of Scripture. Because that misunderstanding or that tradition or that preference is driving them, and they can point back to a truth out of Scripture, probably taken out of context, to justify some wrong behavior. That's what the Pharisees were all about. It's no wonder that he says, your righteousness must exceed them. So as he tells us, hey, you don't think this, but I'm going to ask you to think this. He is checking some assumptions that we have, and I want to put three before you, right? Assumption number one is that Jesus doesn't care about the Old Testament, and then dot, 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 neither should we. Jesus doesn't care about the Old Testament. That is an assumption that we may have of him. Why would that be an assumption? So Jesus walks around, and his disciples in Matthew 12 are walking through a grain field, a wheat field. And when he's walking through, his disciples and him take some, uh, some of the wheat, right? They, they, they crack some wheat off, and they start kind of doing this number to separate the chaff from the wheat so they can figure out what to get a little snack on. And the Pharisees, because they're obsessed with Jesus, are following through, apparently, following him through this wheat field and saying, hey, man, that's not right. You can't do that on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, which... If I was a Pharisee in that day, I'd be like, yeah, we're going to kill him one day. Whatever that is, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to kill him. There's a little bit of like, you can see how they got to the conclusion they got to. There's also like, man, if I'm not careful, I may do the same thing and push away things that I disagree with that Jesus is up to. So does he care about the Old Testament? Of course he does. He did not come to abolish it. So this word for abolish in 517, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's just a way of saying the whole Old Testament. I've not come to abolish it, to destroy it, to throw it down, or to diminish or discard it. Now, I don't know about you, but if you looked at my Bible, you'd see the back half of it is a little bit more worn than the front half of it. But Jesus has come not to diminish or discard any of the parts that I don't read as often came to fulfill them. So if I'm going to truly know the Jesus of Nazareth that God wants me to know, then I better get obsessed with the things that he was obsessed about. You know what he's obsessed about? Knowing God's heart as revealed in the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written yet. The scripture that he based his entire ministry on was the Old. And it's something that we need to rediscover as something valuable in our own lives. He did not come to abolish. He came to fulfill in verse, uh, no, right there, right there in verse 17, right? He comes up to do abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, he says it twice, but to fulfill them. Now, this word for fulfill, you could fill up libraries on. You could truly fill up libraries on. But 
Let me just break it down for us so we understand what he's trying to say. To bring to completion, to its intended meaning. To bring to completion, or to its intended meaning. You'll have to excuse me. I've been at the softball and baseball fields for four days straight, and my voice is gone. Nonetheless, this is what to fulfill means. To bring to completion, to, in, to its intended meaning. The law and the prophets find their completion, find their purpose, right? Find their purpose in the person and ministry of Jesus. So he goes on to say in verse 18, right? For truly, a.k.a. y'all listen now because this is for real. I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. So in our English language, he's saying, not the dot of an I, not the cross of a T will be forgotten or discarded, but all of it will be fulfilled, brought to its intended purpose uh, until heaven and earth pass away. The whole point of Jesus' coming is to fulfill that which we many times discard as irrelevant. So I'm, I don't know what you guys did during a quarantine or have been doing during quarantine. But like, I didn't know that Apollo Anton Ono was on a minute to win it with his soul patch. Still rocking that soul patch. I don't know when they, when they filmed that thing. But every minute counts in minute to win it. Or is it every second counts? Correct me. Every second counts counts in minute to win it. And Jesus is saying, without probably a soul patch, every dot, every letter, every cross of a T, every phrase, every paragraph, every sentence, every every little bit counts when it comes to Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. So I, I, I'm harping on this because I think it's important for us. It's complicated, but it is a bit important that through the perfect life of obedience of Jesus pleasing his Father, he brought to their intended meaning the law and the prophets. So an example of this would be Passover, right? Um, Passover was instituted when the people of Israel were set to uh, come out of Egypt. On the last night that they were there, God told Moses to tell the people, slaughter a perfect lamb and put its blood on the doorpost and on the lintel of your home. And in this way, the angel of death will be sent through the camp and through Egypt. But when the angel of death sees the, the, the spotless blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your home, they will pass over your home and not give you the plague of the firstborn. But for anybody that does not have the spotless blood of the lamb on their doorposts of their home, they will have a visit from the angel of death to give them the plague of the firstborn. That's Passover. That was when it was instituted. And if you go back in Exodus like 12 and read it, it says, keep this forever. But we don't keep this, right? Oh, but we do. We do because that Passover pointed to the true and better Passover, which is Jesus. He fulfilled the intended meaning of the Passover because he became the spotless blood of the lamb. And the angel of death that will give the plague of the firstborn will not come into our homes or our hearts as long as the angel of death sees the blood of the spotless lamb poured over our hearts and our homes. He will pass us over and instead of giving the plague of the firstborn to our enemies, Jesus becomes the plague of the firstborn. He becomes our enemy on the cross or God's enemy on the cross because he takes our sin. In that moment, he fulfills the intended meaning and purpose of Passover so that we keep it by our faith in the Passover lamb. 
He kept it for us. He, in, he, he fulfilled its purpose, purpose, and we, in our faith in him, we fulfill that as well. Sabbath is another one of these. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's a top 10, right? That's one of uh, God's top 10 lists. But the law finds its intended purpose in Jesus, who is our Sabbath rest each and every day, not just on one day of the week, but every day, because he has done all the work necessary for our soul to rest. Jesus did not come to tear down or diminish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it, which is why it says in 2 Corinthians 1, this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So if God has fulfilled all of the intended meaning of the Old Testament in Jesus, do we then just kind of look at the Old Testament and go, well, I mean, he's fulfilled it, so we're good. Assumption two. Obedience is optional. Obedience is optional. It's just kind of one of those things that, that super Christians do. Like, we love Jesus, right? But to obey him, I mean, that's just kind of like, you, you, you guys are Jesus freaks. I'm good over here on, on the fringes. But instead, uh, that's the assumption that Jesus is coming after us with uh, next in verse 10, 19. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying? He's saying if you diminish these things in your heart, it will come out in how you live with others, whether it's your children or your coworkers or, or whomever you're doing life with, you will teach them by how you live. Whether or not you ever sit down and teach them something you are teaching them with how you live. And so if you diminish the commands of God and therefore teach another, you will be called least. But if you do them and therefore teach them, you'll be called great. It's, it's pretty clear that obedience is assumed for the life of the follower of Jesus. This is followed by a stern warning that you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven if we find ourselves diminishing obedience in the life of the believer. So if Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, are we then supposed to obey them? And this is where our head has to get involved. So love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I need you to love the Lord with your mind for the next few minutes. Traditionally, there's been three, three divisions of the law. Okay, This is not in the New Testament, so it is just a tradition. But it is a helpful tradition for these reasons. There's three divisions of the Old Testament law. First, there is the ceremonial law. That is the festivals, the Passovers, um, the sacrifices of the uh, bulls and goats. That has been fulfilled in Jesus. We don't have to go to a temple because Jesus is the ultimate priest that went into the, high, uh, to, the, to, the, uh, to the holy place and once and for all time made sacrifice for our sin. That's Day of Atonement stuff, and that's what Hebrews 10 talks about, that he did it once and for all time. So we are released from ceremonial Jewish law. That's the first kind. The second kind is civic law. This is the law that God gave the nation of Israel. Now, unless you think that we're the nation of Israel, which I don't want to assume that you don't think that. Because some of us, I think, probably politically think that we're the replacement for the nation of Israel. Some of us. Not a lot, but some. Okay, we're not under a theocracy of a king appointed by God. Instead, we're under a presidency where we are but voted in by the people. It's totally different. We're not Israel. 
Um, and so before I move on, I just need you to know, like, that's not us. And so I don't want to dig in too much of that. The civic law then doesn't apply to us. Okay? But there is a law that does still apply to us, and it is God's moral law. God's moral law. These are the laws that are communicating God's heart for all time. The law such as do not commit adultery. Like, that's, that's God's heart. Do not commit adultery. So from beginning to end, we, we don't ever have to question where God stands on the issue of adultery because it's the same over and over and over again. So if we are careful, though, we'll read the Old Testament laws and we'll cherry pick. Um, so, for instance, like food laws. Here's why we're not cherry picking when we eat bacon. Because some may say, well, then you better not eat bacon, right? Um, like this is the great example in our culture um, for the last probably 10 or 15 years, um, particularly around sexual identity and things like that, right? They'll go to the Old Testament and they'll say, yeah, it says that this is, uh, you know, heinous before the eyes of God, but also it says that you shouldn't eat shrimp, right? And so they're, they're using God's word against Christians who read that and go, well, that, that's true. It does say don't eat pork or shrimp. So I guess then everything's okay, but it's not okay because God clarifies the food laws in the New Testament. When he tells Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Don't call unclean what I have now declared clean. That's a clear clarification in the New Testament of God's moral and civic law. That all, all food is clean. So praise God, we get to eat bacon. But what is also clear is that from beginning to end is that there are certain things that we do with our body that are absolute sin. Because there's a bunch of kids in the room, I don't want to go into that. But there are certain things that we do with our body and with our preferences and with our identity identities that are absolute sin from beginning to end. They are repeated again and again and again and again. And we cannot pick and choose, like we're going down the line at Chipotle, what we like. No, instead, God is telling us every bit matters. Every single bit, especially of God's moral law. So I can't tell you which ones apply and which ones don't in moral law. But what I can tell you is this. The way for you to figure it out is to go read it. The way for you to figure it out is to figure out like, okay, if I read the Old Testament and I see some things in there, is that repeated in the New Testament? Is it clarified in some way in the New Testament? So like giving, for instance. Christians are called to give. We're not called to give 10%. That's not repeated in the New Testament. What's repeated in the New Testament is generously and faithfully and sacrificially, and I would say probably more than some percentage. Right? There's, there's a clarification there for us to be involved and for, for, for the Holy Spirit to be involved in every part of our obedience to Jesus. And he says this over and over again in the scriptures. Um, we could read just one in Titus 2, right? That grace, if we're going to be people of grace, we also need to be people of training. Titus 2, 11 would say this. We can't diminish the Old Testament instead. We also can't go, oh, but God has come and been gracious to us. He has. But look what grace does in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What does grace do for us? It teaches us to renounce ungodliness. It trains us for righteousness. 
That's hard work, y'all. Have you ever been trained? I'm going to F45 lately. I hate every minute of it, but I kind of like it. There's pain involved. There's training involved. And that is to hopefully become a little bit healthier than I was yesterday. Grace is training us and teaching us for godliness. That's what grace does. So that's assumption number two, that uh, obedience is optional, but instead God gave himself up for us so that we would be zealous for good works and obedience. Assumption three, not just that obedience is optional, but the other side of the track. So there's some of us over here that are like, I mean, we'll take it or leave it. We'll be okay. Either way, Jesus loves me no matter what. And there's the other side of the tracks where it's like, oh no, I will never miss. I will always be. I will consistently do. Um, if you're into the Enneagram, you're the Enneagram ones in the world. Yeah? You're the ones that want to do right. You're the, you're the, you're the good person for a reason because you're constantly trying to do what's right. This, this word is for you. That obedience is not everything. That is the, uh, that is the, the assumption is I'm going to make obedience then everything. But it isn't everything. As much as Jesus warns us to not diminish the Old Testament or any of God's word, he is going to further caution us not to make obedience the end all. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a massive statement. A massive statement. He says, your righteousness, your moral uprightness has to be better than those that we would look at in the room and be like, man, that guy right there, they're living the life. That lady right there has got her life figured out. It seems like her kids always obey. They're never making noise in the gathering. It seems like they're, like they're always loving on each other. It looks like they have a lot of date nights. Whatever you have, have, have put in place of like what the good life is, Jesus is saying, no, no, your righteousness, your deeds have to be better than what you think those, those are. And for them, it was the Pharisees. Pharisees were ones that were experts in the law. They were scribes. They wrote down God's law. They didn't just know all the jots and tittles. They didn't just know all the iotas and all the, 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 the dots of the I or the crosses of the T. They had them memorized. I don't know about you, but I can't even memorize this sermon. I got, I got notes. They had them memorized. So for Jesus to say, you got to be better than them, was life-changing. Totally controversial. It's no wonder that the Pharisees looked at them and were like, yeah, we're ready. Yeah, mm -hmm. we're going to get him later. The standard for personal holiness must become something greater than what we all fall currently short of. Instead, and in fact, Jesus isn't saying, you've got to be really good at the game of the Pharisees. Attend on Sundays. Give 10%. Um, what other, get a Bible study. Make sure you read your word every day. Pray cons consistently. You got the Lord's Prayer memorized? How about Psalm 23? Do you know anything about Ephesians? Of how we probably start to relate with these types of things in our world. And Jesus is saying, you can do all those things and miss it. You can do all those things and completely miss Him. There is a kind of obedience. Listen, y'all. I know, I know. I know our kids are, are about had it. I know. I get it. There is a kind of obedience that Jesus calls repugnant. Maybe not use that word. But he uses other words in Matthew 23 when he says, Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23, 25, and 28. You hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, 
but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You see what he's after? He doesn't care what you look like on the outside. He cares about if you're transforming on the inside. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs who outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, you who like the law. What is God doing? He is resetting for us a righteousness that has to come from someone else. You see, your righteousness that has to exceed that of the Pharisees, but they're perfect. They haven't broken a law in years, Lord. Yeah, yeah, I'm not here for external obedience. I'm here to transform your heart. I'm here to bring the whole person under the reign and rule of your Father in heaven. He is utterly opposed to those who are cleaned up on the outside do all the right things, use the word blessed a lot. Like in the wrong context, because he just used blessed a lot, so I don't want to say that, but like in the wrong context. How you doing? Blessed, highly favored. In, in the meantime, like you haven't talked to your wife probably in like weeks. It's that kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is totally calling out. He doesn't want our obedience. He wants our hearts. And here's the gift that God is going to give us at the end of all this, is that the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees comes from someone that is not only human, but also fully God and his son, Jesus. And so it's no wonder in verse 10 of chapter 5, he says, blessed are you who are persecuted because of righteousness sake. And then in verse 11, blessed are you who are persecuted because of my sake. He is the standard of righteousness. He is the righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. And it's free. You can't earn it. And the more you try, the more in debt you go into. He's free and he's given himself up for us so that we can have that righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees, that surpasses effort, that surpasses perfection, that surpasses anxiety of constantly trying to figure out, did I do something wrong today? The answer is yes. The answer is always yes. But God has come so that that is not the final answer in our life. He's come to erase the debt, to bring sinners to be friends to bring the enemies of God to, at the table of God. And that's what we're going to celebrate in a few minutes. We celebrate communion as a family of God. We do that because we're celebrating God reconciling enemies and bringing them to the table. God bringing in those orphans. That was all of us without a father in heaven and bringing us into the family of God as his adopted sons and daughters of the king. See, that's the good news at the end of all of this is that our obedience though it matters, only matters after we come to know Jesus. It's no wonder in Ephesians 2, it says, by grace you've been saved, not of works so that no one can boast. And it goes on to say, and he's appointed works for you to do beforehand. Those works are to be done after we are saved by grace through faith, not so that we get saved. This righteousness being freely given, not earned, you don't have to go to like learn from a rabbi other than Jesus. That's why he says, don't ever call anybody else rabbi or father. No, instead, come to him. He's the solution for all these things. So I'll leave you with these three questions. Going back to the beginning. Will you trust God? Will you trust him? Will you trust him when you don't understand him? Will you trust him when, when, when you don't see him working? 
right? We just sang about that in Waymaker. Even when I don't see you working, you never stop working. Will you trust that? Will you trust that when bad things happen, it, God is still good? Will you trust him when you read Joshua and Judges and, and all the rest of the scriptures, when you get to the New Testament and it offends your sensibilities? Because Jesus will do that. If you keep following him, he's going to look at you and go, hey, Pete, I know it looks like you think you got this thing figured out, but it's actually the way of Satan. And you're one of my best friends, but you look like Satan, not like me. He's going to do that at some point in our lives. Will we trust him to be a dispenser of truth and grace? Or will we go, you know what, this is too much. I want to walk away, I can't do it. And maybe it's not the things that we misunderstand. Maybe it's the things that ruffle our feathers and our emotions start to get in the way. I can't tell you how many people I've like personally discipled and shared the gospel with. That It's not about understanding Jesus, it's about liking him. Because he calls them to too much. He calls them to too much. So they, they come to a church or they, they get involved in a small group and it just becomes too anxious for them. And so they walk away from activities. Maybe they're walking away from Jesus. Maybe they're not. But we are a people, a Christian people who follow Jesus and take on his rhythms in all of life. Will we trust him, especially when that kind of disorients us a bit? And this is the last question I have for us. Why are you here? Why are you here? This is clearly inconvenient. Why are you here? Kids ain't mine and they're, they're done with Play-Doh and Wiki Sticks like 40 minutes ago. Right? Why are you here? There are, there, are, there are better things to do with your Sunday morning if you don't believe this stuff. Snooze is pretty good. They have a pretty good French toast on a Sunday morning. If you don't believe this, like, there's no sense in faking this. There's no sense in wrapping your life around the truth if you don't think it's the truth. I'm not here to to like say like you need to come to that's not what we're up up to it's let's revolve let's wrap our lives around the rhythms and the truth of the person of Jesus and if and if he's true if he's if he's who he said he is then inconvenience or not yet let's follow but truly like a question that just rose up in me through this week is like why are we doing this because we Want to socialize with friends? Is it because our wife wants us to come or our husband wants us to come? Or because our culture says this is what a good Christian does? May we be people that evaluate again and again. May we be people that don't assume that our hearts are in the right place. And may we, may we, may we follow the scriptures where we go to God and say, Lord, if there's anything offensive in me to you, even attendance on a Sunday without the right heart, without the desire to actually learn and love you more, without the desire to spur one another up in good deeds. That's what Hebrews 10 tells us. Even if it's those things, Lord, Lord, just examine my heart that I may repent and that I might, may continue to trust in you. Pray with me and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we, um, we don't want to assume on you and we don't want to assume 
in our own hearts that activity equals maturity or activity equals faith. Lord, faith happens from the inside out. It's what you said, like clean the inside and the outside will get clean in the meantime. In the meantime. So we need to be a people that, that cling to the declarations over your people that say there's no condemnation, but not for everyone. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So for those who are in Christ, may we rejoice at your forgiveness. May we rejoice at your patience. May we rejoice at your presence and your power and your goodness in our lives. And for those who are, are not in Jesus, a.k.a. they're in themselves, Lord, in this moment, would you clear their mind? Holy Spirit, wash them clean. Bring them to a place where they know that they cannot do this without you. Their marriage may be falling apart, and it could be because they're selfish, and they're just living for themselves. Lord, help them see that there's good news in that, that you will do it for them. Help us all see where we go astray, no matter what our circumstances. Whether we're in Christ or yet following Jesus, help us all see where we go astray. And may we see those moments as gifts. Because when we acknowledge those moments, what we're really doing is acknowledging that you died for a reason. That's to save sinners. When we walk away from those moments, explaining our sin away, what we're really saying is, I don't need a Savior to die for me. I can explain it away. Lord, help us on both ends of this spectrum and everywhere in between to be people that love you. And that love comes out in loving God and loving neighbor. But it only comes out because you have first loved us. Would you help us along the way? In Jesus' name, amen.